it really was kind of a unique situation and really kind of a perfect storm of events. You've probably heard quite a lot about the Rohingya people in Myanmar. In the last year, more than 700,000 of them have fled the country. It's the world's fastest-growing refugee crisis, according to the United Nations. They've been driven out by a military operation which, the UN says, has destroyed homes and targeted civilians. While Myanmar's military says that it is fighting militants and denies the UN's claims. Some of this might be familiar to you, but what you may not have heard are accusations that the biggest social media company in the world played a key role in fueling that crisis. That company is Facebook. You're listening to the BBC Trending Podcast. I'm Mike Wendling, and with me to explain more is Anissa Subadar. Mike, this is a story about a communications revolution. A SIM card was about $200, and in 2013, they opened up access to other telecoms, and the SIM cards dropped to $2, so suddenly it became incredibly accessible. And how Facebook's hopes of a more connected world went wrong. What emerges is a picture of systematic violence, violence that has been described as a textbook example of ethnic cleansing. Essentially, we're talking about how cheap phones flooded a country, how Facebook became dominant, how the company struggled with a wave of hate in a place where religious tensions were already common. And just a warning, we're going to be talking about violence and you're going to hear language that some people will find deeply offensive. But first, let me explain a bit of the background. Myanmar, also known as Burma, was ruled by an oppressive military junta from 1962 onwards. It's a country of around 50 million people with a strong Buddhist majority, almost 9 out of 10 people. Many of the top officials in the military are Buddhist. In around 2010, there was a slow move towards liberalisation, which led to free elections in the country in 2015. That's when a new government took power, and the de facto leader is Aung San Suu Kyi. She was a long-time dissident, a Nobel Peace Prize winner, and the daughter of a national hero, General Aung San. He was the main man behind Burma's independence from British rule. But since August of last year, an army operation against alleged terrorists in Rakhine State in the northwest of the country has driven over 700,000 Muslims, known as Rohingyas, to neighbouring Bangladesh. The UN have called it a textbook example of ethnic cleansing. That's the history. Anissa, tell us how Facebook fits into all of this. Well, for years, Mike, Myanmar was virtually cut off from most of the rest of the world. But as the government changed, so did the country's telecommunications market. I spoke to three people who all told me a similar story about what started to happen in Myanmar in 2013. Elizabeth Mearns is a digital consultant who worked in Myanmar as a producer for BBC Media Action. That's the international development charity part of the BBC. And her story is echoed by Steve Stecklow, who you heard at the very beginning. Now, he's a senior investigative journalist from the news agency Reuters. The very last person you'll hear is Ted Sui Win, a human rights activist and director of an organisation in Myanmar called Synergy, which works to promote social harmony between ethnic groups. 
it had been an isolated country for a, a long time under a military dictatorship. It was starting to open up. Uh, a SIM card was about two hundred dollars, and in twenty thirteen, they opened up access to other to telecoms. I think one in Norway and one in Qatar came into the market, and the SIM cards dropped to two dollars. And people just purchased them in droves, and they purchased inexpensive smartphones in droves. Most people had no access to the internet at all as recently as six or seven. Eight years ago, so everyone can access to internet through those you know devices and those mobile internet. So nowadays, everyone can use internet. So all of a sudden, the impossible became possible. Cheaper telecommunications meant most people, even in rural areas, were able to purchase mobile phones for the very first time. But with that came a request to have one particular social media platform installed. That platform. Was Facebook. Here's Steve Steckler from Reuters. He recently wrote a report entitled "Why Facebook is Losing the War in Hate Speech in Myanmar." It really was kind of a unique situation and, and, and really kind of a perfect storm of, of, of events. So Facebook, in effect, went viral, and the number of people using it just soared to the point that many people today—that's all they do on the internet—and they use it on their phones primarily. People generally don't have home computers or use desktops. Almost everything is done with a mobile phone. There are lots of apps and social media platforms out there, but I think we need to lay out why Facebook was the number one choice for people in Myanmar. Why, for instance, didn't Burmese people turn to Google or Twitter? Here's Elizabeth Mearns. The Burmese text was not accessible on a lot of the internet, so Google didn't have the Burmese text, didn't have a translation into Burmese. So Facebook, because you could use Burmese text on Facebook, was therefore the very dominant part of the internet, and most people didn't speak English in that country, so they wanted Burmese content. So that put the country into a very、um, unique situation where, if they wanted content, they pretty much had to go to Facebook. BBC Media Action creates radio dramas, videos, posts, and events in local languages to help in development projects in those countries. So, in a population, like you say, of about fifty million people, how many people actually use Facebook? Well, there are varying figures reported, but it's somewhere in the region of eighteen to twenty million. In some areas, it's seen as a bit of a status symbol. They don't know about any other internet browsers and websites, but they only. Look everything through Facebook. So Facebook became internet here. Facebook means everything here. So they search everything on Facebook. It is like trending here because like we have no internet literacy. You know, we have no proper education. You know how to use internet or how to filter the news, and then you know how to use internet effectively. We did not have that kind of knowledge, so everyone is using Facebook. It is like a trending. So if you don't have a Facebook account, then you know people will, you know, laugh at you. In 2013, the founder of Facebook, Mark Zuckerberg, planned to make internet access available to those who couldn't afford it. He wanted it accessible in developing countries. Then last year, he said Facebook's new mission was to bring the world closer together. But in Myanmar. That mission came up against deep religious and ethnic tensions. Those tensions are decades old. Rohingya Muslims are not Burmese citizens, and the prejudice runs deep. This is the BBC's Jonathan Head in 2013 speaking to one of Myanmar's most outspoken religious figures, 
a Buddhist monk, a man who appeared on the cover of Time magazine in the same year with the headline, The Face of Buddhist Terror. Some of the most inflammatory speeches have been made by this monk on YouTube and Facebook. His name is Ashin Wiratu, and he agreed to meet me in his monastery in Mandalay. He says the Muslim population is growing too fast, that the very existence of Buddhism is threatened. He offered this chilling allegory to illustrate his view of Muslims. When you leave a seed from a tree to grow in a pagoda, it seems so small at first, but you know you must cut it out before it grows and destroys the building. And views like that were common offline. But what we're looking into is how that sentiment spread when the whole country suddenly got access to Facebook. Anti-Rohingya and anti-Muslim hate migrated online and was boosted by the power of social media. It went viral. Reuters reporter Steve Stecklow spent time with colleagues in April of this year looking at Facebook. They tried to find evidence of hate speech, of shared material that had directly contravened Facebook's rules, which the platform calls the community standards. So when we were doing the reporting on this story, one of the things I wanted to show was just how pervasive hate speech was against the Rohingya or Muslims on the platform in Myanmar. And to my amazement, in a very short period of time, in under a month, we found over a thousand examples of very vile hate speech. I mean, it was, to be honest, it was sickening to read this. And I, I had to keep saying to the people, like, are, are you okay? You know, do you want to take a break? Steve went on to explain the kind of things they found. Among the examples were things like uh, one post said, pour fuel and set fire so they can meet Allah faster. That was a comment in response to a photograph of a boatload of Rohingya who had left the country and, and, and had landed in Indonesia. There was another one that said, cut off those necks of the sons of the dog and kick them in the water. And another said, stuffed pig's fat inside the damn Kalar's mouth. And these were the ones that we were able to publish. What was so remarkable was that this had been on Facebook for like five years. And it wasn't until we notified them in August that it was removed. Steve Stecklow told me many of the hate-filled anti-Rohingya posts they'd seen were not new, that they were originally posted as far back as 2013. They were still being shared and recirculated this year. And it was only when he told Facebook about what he'd seen that Facebook took action and removed the posts. I was interested in seeing for myself the kind of material on Facebook Steve was describing. So I went upstairs to visit our colleagues at BBC Burmese. So this is from the 28th of August, mm -hmm. so just a, a few days ago. Yes, quite it's recently, a, yeah. It's a photo of Mark Zuckerberg. Uh -huh. And the post in Burmese says... Um, you say Zuckerberg is also a Muslim and dog. He's trying to follow the color. They are the same people. That's a quite offensive as well. And followed by three expletives um, that we probably can't... Share, share a point. They are both again and again and again and again. I've seen quite a lot of it. So there's a huge mix of hate videos, images, memes, posts, comments, stuff that violates Facebook's community standards. Was the company aware that this stuff was being posted? Mike, 
all the people I spoke to, independent of each other, told me similar stories of how Facebook had been warned that hate speech was flooding the platform prior to the military action in Rakhine State last August. During her time in Myanmar, Elizabeth Mearns told us of a popular weekly radio drama produced by BBC Media Action. The Teacup Diaries was set in a tea shop, which are very popular places for people to meet. And it was about a couple who ran this tea shop and they had other ethnicities coming in or working for them. It was around then that Elizabeth had started to notice hate speech online. And late last year, she too told Facebook about her concerns. When I spoke to them, it was not a surprise to them. They had heard those concerns before. And the people I spoke to were concerned. They were not dismissing it. They were very concerned about it themselves. They just didn't have the resources. I had a meeting with Facebook team like two, three months ago in Yangon. They felt like they would take action and blah, blah, blah. But they are slowly doing it, but, you know, they should have done it years ago. A few organizations want Facebook about those possible threats in the future, but Facebook failed to take those effective actions. Back in 2013, there was an Australian documentary filmmaker named Ayla Collin who actually met with a very high-level official at Facebook's headquarters and, you know, had discussed with him the situation of hate speech on the platform in Myanmar going back to 2012. And then in 2014, Ayla Callan and several other activists in Myanmar got involved with Facebook again through a private Facebook group where they communicated, you know, giving them example after example of hate speech and things on a platform that, that ought to be taken down. There's a tech entrepreneur named Dave Madden, and he had spoken to Facebook officials like numerous times. They had spoken to Facebook officials, including at its headquarters in Menlo Park, California, several different times in like 2015, 2016, 2017. And, you know, he said to me, it couldn't have been presented to them more clearly, and they didn't take the necessary steps. Things came to a head in August of 2017. By late morning on the 30th of August, on the riverbank at Tulatoli, dozens of people had already been murdered. But it wasn't over yet. Some villagers had escaped by swimming across the river, but many remained behind, especially younger women who'd been separated from the rest by the soldiers. Those who survived endured an ordeal of almost unimaginable horror. In the months that followed, Myanmar was host to what the UN called the world's fastest-growing refugee crisis. Stories about massacres like the one you just heard from the BBC's Gabriel Gatehouse on the massacre of a village called Tulatoli were widespread. Villagers gave harrowing accounts of the treatment of Rohingya Muslims, with video footage shot on mobile phones of killings and arson. Anissa, what have international authorities said about the events of last year? Well, UN investigators were not allowed into Myanmar by the government, so they interviewed around 900 witnesses who had fled the country. Through those interviews, they found that the actions of the military, known as the Tatmadaw, had led to what they described as indiscriminate killing, the gang raping of women, assaulting children and burning entire villages in Rakhine, which is home to the Muslim Rohingyas, and in two other provinces, Shan and Kachin. 
the Tatmadaw also carried out murders, imprisonments, forced disappearances, torture, rapes and used sexual slavery and other forms of sexual violence, persecution and enslavement, all of which constitute crimes against humanity. Mike, the other thing the UN mentioned is Facebook's role in all of this. This is Radhika Kumaraswamy speaking at a recent press conference in Geneva, and she's a member of the UN's independent international fact-finding mission on Myanmar. So what we have, we have a section here on hate speech, uh, and that was a very important factor in Myanmar, and especially the role of Facebook uh, in mounting this hate campaign. And we've had a detailed interaction with Facebook, uh, quite intensive, We should say here that the Burmese government denies all the allegations. They reject the UN's report and conclusions and say they have their own ongoing inquiry. A spokesperson has said that Myanmar has zero tolerance for human rights violations. Earlier, we heard from Steve Stecklow, the investigative journalist from Reuters, and I saw for myself with BBC Burmese the kind of hate speech that was being shared on Facebook. Many of those posts are still on the site. So why has Facebook struggled to get a hold on hate speech being posted from inside Myanmar? Well, Mike, there are a few reasons. One of them is a complicated technical one to do with the way the Burmese language appears on phones in Myanmar. And what that means is most people in Myanmar would have trouble reading Facebook's instructions on how to report hate speech. Another issue is some of the specific words being used are hard to translate or have dual meanings. There's a common term in Burmese. It's a highly charged racial slur. And that term is kalar. It's used to describe Rohingyas. Steve Stecklow explained it has another, more innocent meaning. A lot of people in Myanmar refer to the Rohingya not by their name. Many people will not utter the word Rohingya because they believe that that gives them some legitimacy as an ethnic group. Facebook itself in 2017 announced a ban of the word Kalar, but they they came under a lot of criticism because it turns out kalar can also be used related to the word chickpea and it appears in recipes and things like that. So within a very short period of time, Facebook sort of undid its ban. So Facebook struggled with the font and the language. But perhaps the biggest issue is that the company just did not have enough people to monitor Burmese posts. According to Steve Steklow, in 2014, the company had just one content reviewer who spoke Burmese. By 2015, that number had increased to four. They now have 60. And by the end of the year, hope to have around 100 Burmese speakers. Now, you have to remember that there's 18 million active monthly users of Facebook in Myanmar. So you're talking even 100 people monitoring the posts of 18 million people. I mean, that, that's got to be a huge challenge. In the face of those millions of posts, Facebook has called on NGOs, journalists, governments, Facebook users, basically anyone they think could help fill in the gaps. Here's Steve again. Well, I spoke with the civil society organizations, a number of them in Myanmar, and what they said to me is, we don't have the resources to really do this. And for Facebook to depend on us is sort of ridiculous. I mean, they're this huge multinational company, you know, where this small organization operating out of Yangon, you know, we don't have the time or or the wherewithal to constantly turn over things to them. 
We contacted Facebook for an interview, and at the time of recording, they hadn't responded. They have, though, taken some action in addressing the problems in Myanmar. Last month, the company removed 18 accounts and 52 pages belonging to military officials after they said they, quote, found evidence that many of these individuals and organisations committed or enabled serious human rights abuses in the country. Facebook also issued an update on their work in Myanmar and they say that they were too slow to prevent misinformation and hate on Facebook. In that update, they stated that countries that are new to the internet and social media are susceptible to the spreading of hate speech. The subject also came up recently when Facebook's chief operating officer, Sheryl Sandberg, testified in front of a US Senate committee. There, she said Facebook were implementing a policy that allowed them to remove misinformation because of the potential to contribute to imminent violence or physical harm. Mike, what we've heard is a story of a country with a deep-rooted history of religious and ethnic tensions and what happens when it's suddenly exposed to social media. There wasn't a gradual rise in digital technology like some countries have seen. This was very fast and it was delivered to a society which may not have been ready. Facebook, because it's the most successful, has become the figurehead of this problem. But, you know, this problem also happens on other social media platforms and, you know, it's happened since the internet started. We are definitely now in a situation where content on social media is directly affecting people's real life. It's affecting the way people vote, it's affecting the way people behave towards each other and it's creating violence and conflict. So the idea that everything is freedom of speech, I think that that is a naive view to say that all these things should be allowed to happen with uh, no consequences for the companies involved. The international community understands now, I think, that it needs to step up and understand technology and understand what's happening on social media in their countries or in other countries. That's it this week for the BBC Training Podcast. I'm Mike Wendling. My thanks to our reporter, Anissa Subadar. Our producer, Ed Main, and our studio manager was Graham Putterfoot. We'd love to hear from you, so please get in touch. Tell us what you thought about this episode or any other one. Send us a tweet or a Facebook message. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review and a rating. It really does help people find the program. If you like trending, there are other BBC podcasts out there that you might like as well. And one particular favourite of ours is People Fixing the World. Stories about inspirational characters and ideas from around the globe. Download it wherever you get your podcasts from. And from us here on Trending, that's all for now. We'll be back in your feed very soon.